Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Paul Simon does not tell us whether his wristband has a barcode on it or maybe some other kind of thing like that. But a lot of wristbands do have barcodes these days, particularly if you're, I don't know, in the hospital, for example. (laughs) Um, And barcodes are really everywhere. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Let me set this scene. 50 years ago, not 50 years ago to the day, but 50 years ago in 1974, Uh, In Troy, Ohio, at a Marsh's grocery store, uh, a cashier named Sharon Buchanan scanned a barcode to ring up a pack uh, of Wrigley's Juicy Fruit Gum that had been placed on her counter by, in fact, an executive, Clyde Dawson, uh, an executive at Marsh's grocery stores. And that was the first time ever, at least in a commercial setting, outside, you know, a laboratory or something, uh, in a retail setting, that a barcode was scanned. And it started a mostly silent revolution in American retail and then in many other sectors of life, including emergency rooms and places like that. Uh, And I say mostly silent because as you'll hear on the show today, barcode technology may have ever so slightly or perhaps more than ever so slightly affected the 1992 presidential election. Uh, And it definitely kicked off at one point and maybe sort of at a, a, a series of rolling points a major conspiracy movement uh, among evangelical Christians. We'll explain all of that to you, but the first thing we're going to do is explain what barcodes are and how they work and what they've been doing the last 50 years here. Uh, To do that and many other things as well, Jordan Frith uh, is the Pierce Professor of of Professional Communications at Clemson University, author of the book Barcode, um, and the person who knows everything about barcodes, uh, including how to read them himself. Jordan Frith, welcome to our conversation. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, I don't know if I know everything about barcodes, but I certainly know more than I figured I ever would (laughs) if you'd asked me three years ago. Definitely. I'm prepared to say you know everything about barcodes. Um, And maybe we should just say that uh, that day in Troy, Ohio, was obviously the culmination and fruition of a lot of work by a lot of people, especially an ad hoc committee, a mysterious ad hoc committee. What did they think they were doing? I mean, I I assume they didn't think they were going to really really revolutionize the the texture uh, of retail commerce and other things for a 50-year period. What what was the overall goal that led up to that day in Troy, Ohio? 
So that's a really good question. Um, and I found all kinds of interesting stuff when I was diving into the one archive of barcode history, which had meeting notes. And so for a bit of background, the ad hoc committee was put together by the grocery industry to explore whether barcodes could be used for checkout and inventory and things like that. And they put in four years of work, which involved a bunch of extra steps we can maybe discuss later. And from the meeting minutes I found, like it was a bunch of executives. They knew they were doing important work, but at the high end, I think they expected barcodes to maybe best case scenario be used around 10,000 stores. So like they knew they were doing something big, but there is no indication any of them thought they were doing anything that you and I would be talking about 50 years later. Like at best, I think around 10,000 stores, maybe last a decade, something like that. But yeah, no idea that it was going the last as long as it did. And it just turns out they're very good at doing a lot of other things besides scanning groceries. I mean, for example, there's they're used now by emergency responders at disaster scenes. Uh, they can track different patients by putting barcode uh, wristbands on, on them or some kind of triage tag so they know which patients need urgent care. Which I mean, if you've got 25 people at the end of a, a big crash or something, it's hard to keep track of them all, which ones needs to go to the hospital and which ones are in the most trouble. They use barcodes for stuff like that. They use barcodes to study very, very small animals who are hard to keep track of. Uh, they've started to use it with ants and bees. You just put little tiny barcodes on them to figure out which, which bee is doing which. I mean, there's just so much that they can do. But it's also one of these things that we use all the time without really having any idea of how it works. You know how it works. How does a barcode actually work? So... That's actually a really good point. And until I started doing my research, I'm 41. So I grew up with barcodes everywhere. And I had scanned, I don't know, tens of thousands of them. And I'd never wondered how they worked. And when I got into my research, so if you take a barcode at a grocery store, which is a universal product code barcode, that's like the most recognizable type. The way it works is it's 15 pairs of black lines and white spaces. Okay. Three of those pairs, the long ones on the left, middle, and right, don't do anything as far as data goes. They're just there for orienting the laser. But then it's the other 12 pairs that each pair represents a number, zero to nine. And the way they represent a number is through the thickness of each of the black lines and how much space there is between them. So every five, for example, and this is all standardized through this massive global bureaucracy but every five is the same exact width of each of those black lines with the same amount of space between them so it's just pairs of lines they don't even have to be vertical any pairs of lines that are standardized to represent a digit zero to nine is how a barcode works Okay, so um, we should say another thing, which is that your book is part of this wonderful series called Object Lessons, in which you know everyday things are taken and, and by by writers and researchers like you and explained in great detail and teased apart. This is not the first show we've done based on an Object Lessons book, but I consider you to be Jordan. I consider you to be the Daniel Day Lewis of Object Lessons book writers, <laughs> in the sense that your level of commitment to your role is higher than the rest of those people. You turned yourself into a scanner, right? You figured out how to read a barcode. Explain that. So, yeah, so you could actually look up what each one of those pairs of lines (laughs) means, right? Mm -hmm. And because they're always the same, 
at one point, it's a sign I maybe got like a little too into my research. <laughs> you or, think? <laughs> or maybe a sign that I was totally procrastinating from doing stuff like, I don't know, writing. I actually went through and kind of learned how to read a barcode. So you can find online, if you Google it, what each five looks like as far as the pattern, what each nine looks like. And you can go take that, take a UPC barcode, and you can identify and read those lines. Now, I can't do it like off the top of my head. I would hmm. need it like actually <laughs> next to me. But you can read them. Um, it's just pairs of lines, and you just need to remember and memorize like how thick each pair of line is on a different number, zero to nine, and you can ostensibly read them. I mean, it would be hard, and it would be a weird thing to learn how to do, but you could do it. Jordan, I don't know how to tell you this, but you're a cyborg now. You're a cyborg. Uh, <laughs> and But a delightful cyborg, and somebody's written a very interesting book. So um, these barcodes, I mean, they made things a lot easier for a lot of people. And I mean, I'm older than you, so I grew up you know, with uh, cashiers punching numbers into big clunky. I basically grew up in a Carol Burnett show sketch. So <laughs> just, you know, cashiers punching these things into big clunky uh, machines. This is way easier for a lot of people, but it was not uncontroversial. Uh, the first set of controversies happened way back in the 1970s where there was a sense, and it was led by uh, the Consumer Federation of America, in, in particular a person named Carol Tucker Foreman, uh, who basically said that this is being foisted on unsuspecting consumers who are used to looking for price tags. When they pick up an item, they look at the price tag, they find out how much it costs. All of that's going to change. It might change for the worse. Say a little bit more about that controversy. So, yeah, this was a controversy I had never known existed because I had never considered that barcodes would ever be controversial. But when I dove into that history, um, this ad hoc committee had spent four years meeting with stakeholders, doing all of this preparation, like they were ready to go. But one of the stakeholders they had not spent much time with, which later they have internal documents saying how bad of a screw up this was, was consumer organizations. And particularly Carol Tucker Foreman, who one of the lawyers on the committee later described as a very fierce opponent that they were not a pre prepared to um, face. And her argument was essentially that there was this thing called item level tagging, which is what you're talking about, which I had never heard of, but which was that there was a price tag on every item. Part of the reason grocery stores wanted to like go with barcodes was to get rid of that because it costs a lot in retail costs. So it costs a lot to employ people to do it. And they wanted to replace it with just putting a price tag on a shelf and then someone will scan a barcode. And she was very against this um, because she felt like it was robbing consumers of their agency to shop comparatively. She felt that the grocery store hadn't consulted with consumers. She felt like they were going to pay for these expensive systems and just pass the cost down. But item level tagging was the big thing. And she started a national campaign essentially against barcodes that was really effective and really scared the grocery industry and began as soon as they launched. Like she appeared on the Phil Donahue show to warn people about barcodes in 1974, the same year they launched. She did nationwide debates with grocery executives. She led boycotts. She testified in front of the Senate. She testified in front of state legislatures. 
a lot of it was about preserving those price tags that people were so used to, which seems so foreign to me, but was a major concern at the time. Yeah, and I think another thing that happened was kind of a, a patchwork system of state laws in response to that. For example, here in Connecticut, we've had we had laws. I don't know how many of them are on the books. The best one was, and I think it might still be on the books, Jordan, uh, that you know, in the event that the electronic price is shown higher than the posted retail price, wherever the posted retail retail price is, including maybe in their circulars or whatever, you know, sale things, um, one item of such consumer commodity shall be given to the consumer at no cost. You get your box of rice pilaf free if they if the scanner says it's more expensive than it's than the shelf says or, or the. Re, the re, but there was a lot of stuff like that, right? State to state to state, all maybe a little bit different. Uh, a lot of places pass laws saying there's going to be a screen in front of the consumer so the consumer sees uh, the prices as they go up. Um, but I don't think there was ever a, a uniform federal response to all those concerns. No, there was never a federal response. It was like kind of state patchwork. So a few states, um, the consumer organizations did get them to pass like temporary laws, like mandating item level pricing for a while. Michigan had a weird law in the book until like fairly recently. Um, I don't know if anyone actually followed it, but they got a few states to pass temporary laws. But there was never any federal legislation passed, which, as I discussed in my book, that was kind of the biggest threat the barcode ever faced, because if there had been federal legislation passed, we might not have barcodes. Because if you had to mandate item level pricing, barcode systems were just way too expensive and weren't saving any money. So it was like an existential threat to the barcode and the grocery industry. All of these like rules that of people trying to like make item level pricing stay around. All right, so I want to talk about a different controversy. Uh, it affected a, a young man with uh, political aspirations. Uh, I'm going to let him tell his huh. own story, however. You're going to hear him mention Punch Salzberger. That was then uh, the nickname of the publisher of the New York Times. So uh, here's this young man explaining the problem that he had. Uh, this is A1 Cat. Because I didn't write the editors. I didn't write the publishers when I was president. I wrote one letter to Punch Salzberger when I was I thought smeared by an ugly story about being disconnected because of the scanner. I never knew what a scanner was. And what we had done is seen brand new technology. Uh, and most of the other media people reported it that way. In the grocery this, store. Yeah, but the one, no, it was in a, in a convention unveiling new machinery, how you could take a crushed package for the first time in history and show the price tag on that package. And I said, this is amazing. So some lazy little reporter for the New York Times sat in his office, wasn't even there, and wrote, there he is, he's out of touch, he doesn't know you can scan groceries. And the damn story lived on, even though a CBS guy said this is unfair, even though somebody, you know, everybody else, most everybody else jumped on the guy that wrote the story. But it's still there, caught up in one of your big computers somewhere. And I saw a favorable story about me in the Wall Street Journal this year. Hell, I'm out of it. And it referred to, the, well, it's too bad he wasn't connected, and his scanner thing showed that. So it actually kind of turned into a trope. It's actually called sometimes the super scar supermarket scanner moment, uh, and that term gets applied to other politicians. I think Romney had one that was also not really fairly characterized, uh, and certainly when Dr. Oz went and started looking for crudités, and um, that was called another super <laughs> supermarket scanner moment, is it, sort of a thing. And, and Jordan... 
I mean, that thing, which was, I, I, I think gen- it's generally agreed it was inaccurately described and, and, and played into a pre-existing idea of George H.W. Bush as kind of out of touch with the uh, concerns of the common person. But it followed him all the way to his obituary, right? Some of his obituaries continue to mention. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. So, yeah, it's a wild story. So he went to a national grocer convention in um, February 1992, the year of the election. And there weren't reporters there except for one pool reporter because it was a national grocers convention. And why would there be reporters there? And just one pool reporter just mentioned that he found the scanner fascinating. Right. (laughs) And a look of wonder. And then that got picked up by Andrew Rosenthal and got turned into a front page New York Times story about how he is so out of touch and he's never shopped in a supermarket. And by that point, barcodes in like 10 short years had gone from essentially a thing that had almost failed by the early 80s, but by 1992 was just kind of this symbol of regular America, which is kind of an amazing transition. And despite, like President Bush mentioned in that quote, Despite stories that kind of debunked it and his press secretary went on the offensive and all kinds of things like that, it kept getting repeated over and over again in the 1992 presidential campaign and was something like he could not live down. Like postmortems about the election talked about it. Um, It made it into his New York Times obituary, as you said, Mm. without any note that it was not a true story. Because, yeah, it was not a regular barcode scanner that he was amazed by. It was this new technology, right? Mm -hmm. And yet it would not go away. And like Bill Clinton talked about it. Hillary Clinton gave interviews about it. Like Democratic operatives like really used it. Because like you said, it's not that it came out of nowhere. It did feed into these like pre-existing like conceptions of Bush who had been gone straight from the head of the CIA to the vice president for eight years to the president for four years. Like, I mean, he probably hadn't bought his own groceries in like 15 years. But (laughs) yeah, the story was not true and it would not go away. And so somehow barcodes got tied up and became this major story driving like the whole 1992 election. My guess is he could he did grocery shopping at some Kennebunkport general store where you put stuff on your tab. You know, you just <laughs> buy a whole bunch of stuff. So put it on my tab. Uh, so one more controversy. And it's interesting because this is another one that followed somebody past the threshold of death. Uh, when one of the two inventors uh, of the barcode, uh, Joseph Woodland, died on some of the places where his obituary or memorial things were posted and people could comment, wait with comments, <laughs> usually about what, what a wonderful person person the deceased was, there were people saying, no, he was a pawn of Satan who was going to turn the rest of us into the pawn of, pawns of Satan. So you better explain this. There's this whole idea that circulated among certain a certain segment of the evangelical Christian community that barcodes were up to no good in a very specific way. Jordan, tell them about that. So yeah, um, barcodes, like I mentioned, so 15 pairs of lines and there's three pairs of lines the longer ones that just don't do anything um those three pairs of lines that just don't do anything somehow got misread um and i'm not sure exactly where it started but the person who probably popularized it was an evangelical writer named marie ralph who as she describes in the book the new money system 
had a moment of divine revelation where she was looking at a barcode and she realized those three pairs of lines all represent 666, the mark of the beast. So barcodes became, in certain evangelical communities, the mark of the beast. Like, quite literally, they feared that it was a sign of the coming apocalypse, that if you shopped at places with barcodes, um, you were taking the mark of the beast, which all comes from two sentences in the book of Revelation, which talk about the mark of the beast. But they became this thing that people protested. Um, it lasted for years and years. You can still find websites talking about it. But essentially, barcodes as the center, center of this vast global biblical conspiracy where hidden in those lines were the numbers 666. And if you shopped and you bought barcodes, you were taking the mark and aligning yourself with an ant, the Antichrist. Right. Which, and, yeah. And I, I, don't, I know that they deny that this is the reason. But Hobby Lobby, which, as most people know, is founded and run by rather conservative Christians, does, I think it's up to this moment, I think it's true up to this moment, they don't scan barcodes. Uh, they punch numbers in at the register. They say it's because they value humans over robots or something like that. But, you know, you have to kind of wonder. <laughs> With, you do have to kind of wonder because you could still use humans and just scan barcodes. Right. Also, like, doing inventory must be incredibly complicated without barcodes. So, yeah, Hobby Lobby's one where they deny it, and maybe that's true. But you could use humans and scan barcodes, hmm. and the idea that they have these massive stores and there's really nothing to track inventory blows my mind, and I would not be shocked <laughs> if that is the reason. Because that, yeah, it's stuck around for, it. you can still find it. You have newer things people have identified as the mark of the beast, like radio frequency identification yeah. tags. Um, but barcodes, it's lasted for like, 40, 50 years and popped up almost as soon as like barcodes began being released. You had people warning about them before anyone really even saw them in grocery <laughs> stores. So it's kind of an amazing thing yeah. um, to track. Maybe they've persisted so long because Satan wants them to persist for so long. We have to take a little break. We're going to come back uh, talk to a little bit. We're going to talk to you about what is actually a barcode, which is a QR code. And Jordan's going to explain why that would be the case and what's going on with them, too. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. 
For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevatinghealth. I spent a little bit of time today trying to figure out whether that's a parody song or actually a serious Christian pop song. And I think it's the second thing, but it doesn't really matter. Anyway, we're talking about barcodes, and we're talking about barcodes with the person who, as they say, wrote the book about barcodes, Jordan Frith, uh, the Pierce Professor of Professional Communications at Clemson University, the author of the book Barcode, and the Daniel Day-Lewis of the Object Lessons book series. And, <laughs> and just to continue with that idea of your commitment, Jordan, these other authors, they write their books, they're fine, they move on. I believe you actually got a barcode tattoo, which is a very Daniel Day-Lewis thing to do, but explain that to us. So this is my sixth book, and it's the only book I ever actually still want to talk about after I finished it. <laughs> and <laughs> so... One of the sections of the book is on barcode tattoos um, and kind of their long history. And it's like kind of loaded through science fiction, all the other stuff. But I wrote in the book that if the book gets published, I was going to get a barcode tattoo. So I got a barcode tattoo on my arm of the ISBN of the book. And at least for now, if I scan that barcode tattoo on my phone, it brings me to the ISBN for the book. Now, that won't last forever because skin changes. But at least as of now, I am scannable, and you could buy my book just right off my arm. And yet you deny being a cyborg. Um, all hey. right. <laughs> so uh, you might have heard people sometimes say, oh, well, QR codes are going to replace the barcode. There are several problems with that statement, Jordan, starting with the fact that QR codes are barcodes. Yes, QR codes are what are called two-dimensional barcodes. So if you think about a barcode at a grocery store, um, that's called a linear barcode. The data is in one direction. QR codes, data matrix codes, there are a bunch of 2D barcodes. Those have data in two directions, and so they can hold more data. But they're still ultimately barcodes. They work through like the same principles. And they're not new. They began being designed in like the late 80s and the QR code was designed in 1994. And so, yeah, they've been around a long time and it's just kind of uh, adding a second dimension of data to existing barcode technology. Now, there was also people yeah, saying that QR codes would supplant the barcode, but kind of the opposite happened for a while, right? There was a period, I think maybe around 2013 or so, where People started writing articles and maybe even books saying that QR codes were kind of a massive flop or just at least not what they seemed like they were going to be. What was going on at that point? So, as I mentioned, QR codes are from 1994. They were invented actually to track items in the Japanese automotive industry. But in like the late 2000s, you started having a push where QR codes were supposed to be like the next big thing. Like that's when I started my PhD program. And I remember like that. I almost wrote a dissertation on it. Glad I didn't. Um, 
And they were supposed to be the next big thing to bring people the data and all this other stuff. And they, at least in the West, they flopped so hard and were so annoying. Because I don't know if you remember when people were like handing out like things with QR codes and they were hard to scan. They were just annoying. They became like a literal joke. Like people wrote books. There's a book called QR Codes Kill Kittens, which is this great collection of all the terrible ways they'd be used in marketing. And they became kind of a cautionary tale in the tech industry for super hype technology that nobody wanted. Like they failed almost completely to the point where, yeah, there were like stand-up bits about them by the mid 2010s. <laughs> now I do want to mention I do want to mention like that's in the West. In China, for example, QR codes starting in around 2010 became like the backbone of their microtransaction industry because um it's big in a lot of their social media apps. So it's not like they failed everywhere, but like at least in like most parts of the world outside China, like it was just a complete flop because I don't know, people didn't want them. They were not that easy to scan. It was not clear what the purpose was. People were just slapping them on everything. It was annoying. I remember it being annoying. I remember it being annoying too. Then the pandemic came and suddenly QR codes were like, how do you like us now? Now that you have a pandemic, go ahead. So one of like kind of the weird quirks about QR code history is one, a lot of people like ask me about them, like they're a new technology, but no, they're 30 years old. But then, yeah, they blew up during the pandemic. And a big part of the reason they blew up during the pandemic was because of initial misunderstandings of how COVID spread. And I don't know if you remember, you, I'm sure you do, when we were getting told to, like, wash our hands 50 times a day and yep. that COVID spread through touch and yeah, everything so the term, like that. The term was fomite transmission. Uh, that was the idea that you yes. could pick it up in your fingers. Yeah. And even by that first summer of COVID, the scientific consensus had shifted that it was probably not through touch, but it didn't matter. Um, QR codes already started to pop up on menus everywhere. Um on flyers so you didn't have to touch them all of a sudden like in this world where we were not supposed to touch things being able to scan qr codes on your phone made a huge difference and on top of that android and um iphone had changed their software so that you could scan them directly from your camera and you didn't need a special app but that happened in 2017 so that just made it easier it was really like the pandemic where you started seeing them appear everywhere and there were other countries, too, where they were trying to track people's movements a little bit in terms of contact tracing and stuff like that, where QR codes could be even more helpful just in sort of figuring out who went where. Yeah, they were seen often as like a compromise between there were more technologically advanced ways to do contact tracing, like to actually track people's phones constantly through Bluetooth and stuff like that. But that was seen as too big an invasion of privacy. So what a bunch of countries did, Australia, for example, is you had a special QR code. And if you went into somewhere, you scan that QR code. So later, if someone reported they had COVID, who had been there at the same time, you could be alerted. So, yeah, it became this kind of compromise thing and became a big thing in contact tracing in other parts of the country where, you know, they tried to do that thing kind of thing. 
So we want to end uh, on an uplifting note. So I'm going to tell everybody that in 2022, the DG Youngling and Son Brewing Company uh, unveiled the world's largest QR code. They grew it from, they planted crops in the pattern of the QR code they were using at that time. So the QR code, you know, visible from helicopters or whatever, uh, measured roughly one <laughs> one quarter mile long by one quarter mile wide, so about the length of twenty football fields. So there's the QR code standing up proud. Uh, Jordan Frith, you have been a delight to talk to. You're a great interview. Let us know when your next book is done. But right now, we do encourage people to read the book Barcode, part of the Object Lesson series. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. And we're going to um, take a little break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about something else that happened during the pandemic that involved the QR codes, which is the sudden disappearance of, of, of theater programs, playbills, restaurant menus, stuff like that. I see them congregating in evil places. All right, so we're back, and I have to tell you about some things that you probably don't really care very much about, but we do. We just moved up today to a brand-new studio. We've done our last show down on the third floor of this building. The third floor of our building looks sort of post-apocalyptic. It looks like one of those places where everybody either died or had to flee from zombies really fast without even, like, picking up their coffee cups and stuff. <laughs> so anyway, we've been down there anyway for all these years, and we're up here in a very beautiful new studio with all kinds of great tech that we're figuring out how to make work. And the people helping us do that are Megan Boone and Gina Matruda and Joe Koss and Bradley O'Connor. Today we have two technical producers, Kat Pastor and the maestro, Dylan Reyes, the senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show. is Lily Tyson. She produced this episode. I'm sure there's somebody else I didn't thank. I'm really sorry about that. I will make it up to you. Uh, but we're now going to talk, as I said, about menus and playbills. And for that matter, I mean, really everything about going to the theater changed, right? I mean, even tickets kind of were maybe going to be on your phone as well. It all happened during the pandemic. Sean Willard is with us, a menu engineer with Menu Engineers. Uh, and Bailey Sincox uh, is a Perkins Kotzen postdoctoral fellow at Princeton, Uni Princeton Society of Fellows, where she teaches and writes about early modern literature. It's all going to get tied together, believe me. But Sean, so I have to say that I had to wait a little bit longer to go back to restaurants than a lot of people did just because there were some immunocompromised people in my family. So I went to a restaurant in New York. I don't know. I guess it must have been December of 2023 or something, and I, or 2022. And I sat down with my friend, and they, there was a QR code there. And I said, what's that? And my friend said, you haven't been to restaurants for a while, have you? And I said, no. So explain what happened. What happened to restaurant menus, at least for a while? Amazing. Colin, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be on the show. And, you know, we saw a huge shift during the pandemic, sort of the pendulum swung from that traditional print menu to digital menus. Uh, for some people, that was mandated by their local health department, where we had to use either one-time use or fully digital. Um, and uh, what we learned is that we had to be more agile, uh, more adaptive through the pandemic. Uh, there are a lot of benefits of digital menus because we have that agility and ability to change them almost instantly. Uh, there are some drawbacks as well, that romantic side of holding and, and getting to feel the restaurant's uh, brand and personality in your hands uh, was something that was lost with that QR code. Yeah, I mean, I think, 
I mean, there was a necessity or at least a perceived necessity, although, uh, as Jordan was saying in the previous segment, a lot of this was based on ideas about fomite transition that weren't really true. Uh, but yeah, I think people missed what you do, basically, you know, create menus that are in and of themselves interesting to use and look at. And, 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 I, and I'm wondering also if some of the experience of a restaurant is getting away from everything that you have to deal with all day, including your freaking phone, right? I, I don't know. I, I feel like sometimes you go to a restaurant and what, do you, what you want to do is put your phone down, look at the person across from you, have a glass of wine, order some food. Like QR codes seem very, very interruptive of that. Absolutely. Uh, I think it's so important to be able to take that pause from our technology and restaurants are that place to do so. You know, you're visiting with family, friends, uh, business colleagues, whomever, when you're out. And the last thing you want to do is almost seem rude pulling out your phone to look at something. But fortunately, the pandemic made that uh, socially acceptable for us to do and almost more convenient. Uh, but we are, you know, again, we're seeing that pendulum come back to that more traditional tactile feel of, of a printed menu. Uh, and, I, and that's a good thing. You know, for me personally, I love to collect menus when I travel. Uh, they usually remind me of a certain place or uh, a chef that I admire and I get to have a, a piece of them, you know, and that experience to take home with. Yeah, I, I want to come back to that, particularly with Bailey, because in my house, not so much me, but a certain other person in my house collects playbills. We have a lot of them now. But um, one more thing, Sean, before we, we add Bailey to this, which is I think the menu does another thing, which... You know, you can maybe ask for the menu to be brought back and decide, do you want a little something else? Do you want to try a different wine by the glass? Do you want to order a dessert? Um, I, I'm wondering if the QR code sort of was kind of a one and done thing. By the time you pointed the camera, pulled the thing up, looked at it, you're maybe not going to go back again and think about something else you might want. That's very true. Uh, I think we sort of get one shot when a guest is interacting with the menu through a QR code. Some may use it when it's living on the table to maybe order a second different beverage or possibly dessert. But uh, most likely that sale needs to happen, you know, that one time that they're pulling out their phone with the menu. Uh, and what we had to do is, you know, pre-pandemic, oh, gosh, this is back in 2015, we said you had about 60 to 90 seconds of a guest attention. And nowadays we cut that in half, if not more so, you know, down to about 30 seconds. Uh, to 40. And some people are going to make that decision for what they're going to have in the first 10 seconds that they look at a menu. So uh, knowing that everything is more condensed into a smaller time, we try to be a lot more effective in how we lay things out for guests on the menu, uh, especially if they're using a QR code uh, digital format that they're reading on their phone. So it changed the structure for us. Right. Plus, if you're a cheesecake factory, you just have to keep scrolling and scrolling. They have 8,000 things mm -hmm. on, their, on their menu. But um, all right. So Bailey, yeah, there is a way in which these two stories go hand in hand. And it is true that at my house, I'd say we're about 100 more theater nights away from a hoarding problem. Uh, there are a lot of playbills sitting in baskets, but people do <laughs> like them. So explain what happened. I mean, we could talk about it in terms of Broadway. Broadway, of course, closed for a bit during the pandemic and then reopened. And I think when they reopened, tickets were gone for starters, right? Right. Yeah. First, Colin, thank you so much for having me uh, on the show. Uh, this is a topic that's near and dear to my heart. I have always been a theater fan. Um, there are two experiences that highlight this sea change in theatrical ticketing for me. Uh, when I was an undergrad uh, way back in 2012, I went to London with the inimitable Shakespearean Sarah Beckwith, where she took us to see something like 30 plays in six weeks. Mm. 
was more more theater than I'd ever seen in my life. And I saved every ticket and made this huge collage that I put in my dorm room and I had in my apartment forever. That was a, a record for me of that experience. Fast forward a decade later, now I'm a Shakespeare professor. I take my students to London in October, 2023. And it's just what you're talking about with the Cheesecake Factory menu. All of their tickets live in my phone. When we walk up to the usher at the theater, I'm scrolling and scrolling. Uh, there are no tickets uh, for them to take home, which is not to say that they don't have memories or that they don't buy other souvenirs, but that um, material interaction with the theatrical world is so different than it was a decade ago. That was happening. We could say that that change was happening over the course of a decade, but it was also very much accelerated, like you said, by COVID-19. Now, meanwhile, there's the thing called a playbill, which is kind of this kind of standardized uh, print format for uh, for theater programs. Um, I should say my father wrote two Broadway plays a really, really long time ago. And so I know that playbills have been long for a very long time and didn't stop printing through two world wars in a Great Depression. But Bailey, say what happened during COVID. It's true. Playbill was actually founded in 1884. I think a lot of people don't realize how long it's been around and has been continuously distributed across Broadway's theaters. For the first time ever, as you said, in uh, March of 2020, Playbill stopped being printed. The presses stopped and they didn't start again until August of 2021. This was unprecedented. And when Playbill came back, uh, when those first shows started to open in August of 21, it was a very meager playbill. It was thin. There were almost no ads. There were no articles. Uh, it was just the who's who in the cast and a very uh, emotional note from the editors of Playbill marking that rupture in a century or more of tradition. And there is this kind of, I mean, for all of us who love theater, a relationship we have with these playbills. And you're sitting there, you get there a little early, you're reading through the playbill, you want to see who was in the most episodes of Law and Order, of all the people who are now <laughs> appearing on Broadway. Uh, it's always Danny Burstein. But, um, and, and, but you're also, you're a historian, and so you use documents to look at the history of theater. Uh, and so when you were on that 30 plays in six weeks trip, probably you mm -hmm. found out then, if not some other time, that it's very hard to know how many people went to Shakespeare plays in the day of Shakespeare, where they sat, etc. Tell us why that is. <laughs> well, they didn't have tickets in Shakespeare's time, for starters. You paid your penny to enter the theater, and, and that was it. You could pay an extra penny if you wanted a seat, and a further penny after that if you wanted a cushion. Uh, but also, we don't have a lot of documents from that time. We don't have account books and ledgers and the box office takings in today's terms for the Globe, which was Shakespeare's theater, or uh, most of his contemporaries. There are a few exceptions, um, which are beloved of scholars. Um, but as a theater historian, I, I would love to have access to that information in looking at what's happening today with QR codes and playbills and the transition to digital I'm very cognizant of how that's going to affect what future theater historians will know about the theater of today. Yeah, I mean, the, the upside, I guess, with all the digital stuff is that 
you know, you could be like Jordan Frith, or you can go sit in a warehouse and just go through all this data and find out which seat Buster Rhymes sat in the first time he saw Hamilton or something like that. Uh, I mean, it's really kind of amazing how much is there. Uh, the, the loss is in that kind of analog part of the whole thing. So I, I want to bring Sean back in and have you both talk a little bit about this, because some of this is about our psychological relationship to the experiences that we're having. And Sean, I don't know. I've been to a lot of, a lot of restaurants, and it's kind of all over the place, uh, ranging from kind of boring menus that you did not do any work on to wonderful menus that no doubt reflected uh, your magic touch to, you know, there are restaurants where somebody walks over with a great big, huge blackboard and just starts pointing at things. And I'm cool with that, too. That's that's a cool restaurant. They just they got a blackboard, and they wrote everything, and they bring it over to you. But me, Maybe one of the problems with the QR code was it, was it would be hard to make it special, right? You like, Sean, you like menus that are special. Absolutely. We work with teams to figure out what makes their restaurant or their concept special and focus on that, tell that story through the menu. Uh, when we're doing it on a small four-inch iPhone or Android screen, that becomes a lot harder to do effectively. Um, and, you know, there's something... It, that people are longing for, I think, after the pandemic as well, when they go out to eat, in most cases, if we're not eating for utility, but more experiential dining, you know, we want to remember the places that we go and the people we went there with and um, having something that we can take home from that experience that's unique to that guest is wonderful. Uh, I had a good friend of mine and mentor who's no longer with us, Tom Frank, and uh, he was one of the co-founders of a uh, P.F. Chang's way back in the day. And, and Tom had uh, a method for taking at the end of the meal when he'd wrap up your food, he'd take your menu. He would uh, bring a takeout menu as well and put that in your bag. But he would put a circle around what you ate today and put a star next to what you should try next time. And now when you go home with that takeout menu, it's it's personalized to you. You know, you're not just going to let it go in the trash. You're going to save it in the drawer in the kitchen where you keep all your rubber bands and Band-Aids and pens. And, and you hold on to that. And it reminds you when you find it again of uh, that uh, dining experience. Yeah. You should mention just how special a menu can be. I think you were uh, one recently, you saw one recently in Portland, Maine. Tell us about that menu. Oh, uh Oh gosh! It was the kid, <laughs> covers. The, it was kid. The covers of kids' books. Oh yes, uh, that that was a, a great. Every time I walk into a restaurant and the menu is done in a way that I've never seen it before. Uh, this restaurant, uh, they just use kids' books, Bernstein Bears, Dr. Seuss uh, books, and they had cut some pages out that fit, and then they slipped their menu within that, and it was just something really nice. Uh, I I want to say the name of the restaurant's Paper Tiger. It was right next to my hotel, and and it was a lovely experience, but. Uh, any time that the menu can make me pause, because I spend every day, all day, every day looking at menus, uh, but make me say, wow, this is really fascinating. I've never seen this before. Uh, replicating that experience digitally is nearly impossible. Uh, and so I really enjoyed seeing that. And, and kudos to their team for kind of thinking outside the box. You know, Bailey, um, I am, what's the word? Old. And and when I go to the when I go to Broadway shows in particular, I look around. There are a lot of people kind of my age, or maybe even older. And and that group of people, do, a there are a lot of them who don't have a smartphone. I mean, really, we, we should be saying just generally speaking, there are a lot of people who just for socioeconomic reasons don't have smartphones that they can point at QR codes. And that's come up a bit with what's called smart label uh, technology, where you point your phone at some product and it tells you, you know, what the ingredients are so you can make sure you're not allergic and stuff. But, you know, this deprives a whole bunch of people. But Bailey also, 
people who are older um, may not have smartphones. And if they do have smartphones, they may not be able to navigate QR codes or just might find the whole thing stressful and annoying, which makes me wonder whether it, it, it really makes sense to rely so heavily on this QR technology for things like playbills. It's so true. And I think more and more when you go to the theater, you're seeing an age divide uh, between those who use QR code tickets or the, the print at home tickets and those who go to will call, who collect their tickets at the box office. Uh, and I think that uh, it's not just sentimental, uh, it's also practical in, for the reasons that you say to note this change that's happening um, from paper to digital. Because like menus, those tickets and those playbills, when they're saved, when they're preserved by people of whatever age, of whatever socioeconomic background who've been to these events, uh, they carry more than just data about the theater, right? They're also a record of experiences, feelings, uh, those performance events that, that happen in a place and at a particular time. Right. We should acknowledge also that, I mean, the things that we're talking about, particularly playbills, they probably do produce, well, they definitely do produce a certain amount of solid waste. Some of them are recyclable. A lot of theaters have boxes where you're supposed to throw the program in if you're not taking it home with you. But And, and for that reason, th there are some arguments for doing that stuff. I guess, and we only have about two minutes at most left, but... Um, so, Bailey, I'll stay with you for a second. There's an argument, at least with tickets and stuff like that, to make the QR ticket look a little bit more like a ticket or be designed in a way that's aesthetically pleasing as opposed to a mechanistic way. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that um, something that's lost, at least with the, the current version of the QR code ticket and apps like TodayTix or SeatGeek, uh, is that design element. They're not aestheticized in the way that paper tickets often are, where they they are branded by the theater, they have uh, a certain character to them. So I could see, uh, in keeping with arguments for digital uh, tickets being less destructive to the environment, more convenient, and so forth, uh, more, more uh, taking up that opportunity to make tickets part of the aesthetic experience of the theater. All right, we're going to have to stop there. Sean Willard is the menu engineer with Menu Engineers. Billy Syncox is a Perkins Kotzen doctoral follow, fellow in the Princeton Society of Fellows, where she teaches and writes about early modern English literature. Uh, let's say goodbye. Uh, thanks for listening. And it's so exciting to be in our brand new studio. And I'll miss the stars in your eyes and your smile. But I got a hit. The trail. Come summer, he went back to the speedboat and watched censored scenes from King Kong. He found a shelter on the speedboat and he thought, here's where I belong. Just me and my speedboat. Merrily we roll along, along. Monkeys and playbills and playbills and monkeys. And monkeys and playbills and monkeys and playbills and monkeys and playbills and monkeys.